please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. of Revelation chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. After this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, the throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. This morning we are going to be gathering up some gleanings from verses 9 and 10. Most every year in the fall we go to Carter Mountain Orchards and we pick apples. This would be after the apple harvest. They've gone through and they've taken the majority of the apples to be sold for the sustaining of their business. And then they open the doors of the farm. And we and others like us come behind and we gather up What's left over? 
These are called the gleanings. Not a bad business model in that we pay for the privilege of gathering up what they missed at the harvest. But this is what I mean by gleanings. We don't normally cover so much text in a single time, but we have in front of us uh, lessons that we have recently handled. And so as we pass by, we uh, need to remember these things and take them away with us as gleanings and meditate upon them and remember them again. I wanted to set a fuller context before us in the scripture reading because we are soon to be passing out of chapter 4. We are indeed in the very last bit of it. Remember, we are uh, beginning the vision of things which must be hereafter. If you think back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord Jesus Christ provides an outline for this mysterious and difficult book. He told John to write the things that he had seen. That is chapter 1. The vision of the high priest of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ in the holy place, tending to the seven-branched candlestick. The seven churches of Asia Minor, the high priest in the midst of his people. The second division that was given there is write the things that are. That was the condition of the seven churches of Asia Minor as they were at the time, chapters 2 and 3. And now we are reminded at the beginning of chapter 4 that we are entering into the third, final, and largest component of the book, which is the things which must be hereafter, or the things that must be after these things, the condition of the churches in Asia Minor. We have, uh, before we get into events, the events which must needs be, properly speaking, we have to set the visionary stage or scene. And you will remember that I said it's very important that we understand the stage and its setting if we are going to have a full understanding complete understanding and even a confirmed understanding of the things that happen on that stage. So first we are given a, uh, a vision of the center of all things and all things that will take place. The very throne of the sovereign God himself. It is not a vacant throne but an inhabited throne. He sits there, and there he reigns and rules over all things. We see that before that throne is the seven-branched candlestick, the spirit of the living God who illumines the churches. This tells us that we are looking into the holy place, but the... Uh, you remember the tabernacle from of old, when you got to the tabernacle itself, the tent properly speaking, and you looked through the door, what you would see first in the holy place would be, on your right hand side, you would see the table of showbread. On the left hand side, you would see the seven branched candlestick. And immediately before you, you would see a beautiful golden altar, the altar of incense. <laughs> 
But normally you would be able to see no further because there, there was a veil. And only one man, the high priest, and he only once in the year could go beyond that. And beyond that was the throne of the living God. Sometimes even simply called his footstool. But this is his seat, his place of residence. The place where he promised to meet with his people. Normally that was concealed from view. But with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that veil was rent from top to bottom. And now in John's vision, he can not only see the holy place as he stands there at the door, seven branch candlestick, but he can also see the throne. In that place, he is also able to see the uh, 24 elders, the 24 priest kings representative of all of the people of God. They're attending upon the Lord, worshiping Him, serving Him. And even closer to the throne, you have the four living creatures, His ministers. And immediately we find them about their primary function. They declare the glory of the Most High God. Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. He's holy and omnipotent. And He is and was and is to come, the eternal God, present and active in all time, present to all of time to make sure that all of His promises, no matter how anciently declared, will be fulfilled. We last considered that call from the Four living creatures. And now we come to verse 9. Which is the response of the 24 elders. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne. Who liveth forever and ever. I say that this is the response of the 24 elders. Because here what we have is the timing of the worship of the 24 elders, notice the word when. So this is giving the occasion or the timing of their worship. And it says that the timing of their worship is the declaration of the living creatures concerning the holiness of God, his omnipotent rule, and his eternity. They're... Uh, uh, Giving glory to God is here described again, not not as their very words, but here it's it's described uh, in some uh, abstract nouns. Glory, honor, and thanks. That is what the living creatures do. Uh, it's actually not too difficult to see the distinctions between these words, although. Uh, we will find that John will frequently begin to heap up or pile up expressions of worship and praise. But these words are uh, different in their significance. When they give glory to God, glory, properly speaking, they declare His intrinsic excellence, majesty, and perfection. So this is a focus upon the divine being himself. 
in their giving honor to him, there is a relation that is brought into view. Namely, their relationship to him. They owe him honor. So they acknowledge God as infinitely exalted and above themselves. We will find that they consider their own condition in this relationship to be one of abasement. So here they give honor because they are beneath him and he is infinitely exalted. And finally, they give thanks. They give a grateful acknowledgement and remembrance of the many benefits that he had communicated to them. If I might just say by way of brief application, in our prayers, and this is true of almost all human beings, we tend to petition much. And it's fitting that we do so. We are needy creatures. And we do glorify our God when we go to Him as the one and the only one who can meet our many needs, whether they be spiritual needs or temporal needs. But let us not forget to also multiply and enlarge our thanksgiving. Because so many benefits come to us as the answers to our prayers. And he has granted to us benefits far beyond our prayers. Far above both our asking and even our ability to imagine. So we ought to uh, petition much, but give thanks even more. Because his giving has exceeded our asking. And as we noted last week, as we give thanks, we should always rise from our thanks to praise. Not just considering the good gift given, but what it teaches us and tells us about the very nature and attributes of the Most High Himself. And so as we see, for example, the great benefit of redemption, we give thanks for it, but then our thoughts ought to ascend. What does it teach us about God? Behold His love that He would not withhold His only begotten Son. Behold His grace and mercy that He would give such benefits to those who are unworthy. Sinners or sinners. Glory, honor, and thanks is a good rubric to be remembered in our prayers. Here, God Himself is described as the recipient of their worship. We should notice here, it's actually a thing that is important in this book, and we'll come to it. I just want you to notice it here. The 24 elders and the living creatures worship God. They do not bow the knee to angels nor to glorified saints. They are oriented toward the throne and they worship God. And I say that this will become a thing of some significance in the book because we will find in the book the worship of idols and the worship of angels, even in the person of John himself as he needs to be reproved for uh, this very sin in this book. So God is the object of worship here and he's described in two ways. 
that are worthy of note. They give their glory, honor, and thanks to the one who is sitting upon the throne, the ruler of all that is, or in the the very language of the praise of the beasts themselves, the Lord God Almighty, the God and the King. And he's also described by his eternity and presence to all of time. He lives forever and ever in the language of the living creatures again in their own words as it's portrayed here, him who is and was and is to come. Now here called the one who liveth forever and ever. You remember that this is going to be very important in uh, this book, this description of God, because the church is going to pass through many difficulties and these difficulties and travails will last for many ages. And although their lifespans are but short, they need the consolation that their God is an ever-living God and that all of the things that He has promised, although they might not be fulfilled in their lifetime, they will certainly be fulfilled by that one who ever lives. Notice also here that he is described as living in contrast to dead idols. You might want to see the end of uh, Revelation chapter 9. Verse 10. So when the living creatures do so, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. So now we come to the worship of the twenty-four elders, the twenty-four priest kings, properly speaking. And their worship is described by three actions. First, they fall down. When we first met them in Revelation chapter 4, where did we find them? We found them seated. It's somewhat concealed in our translation, but they are said to be seated upon thrones. Not just seats, but thrones. Same word that's used to describe God's throne. Now they are said to fall down. Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 1. If we were to ask the question, why do they fall down? Why do they come down from their seats and fall down before his? Revelation has already given us the answer. Chapter 1, verse 5, we're in the middle of the trifold benediction. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. They recognize that they hold their thrones not because of any intrinsic merit in themselves, They were not able to 
climb into these thrones by their own power or by their own merits. They were not able to place crowns upon their own heads. Here, that work is attributed to the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, having washed them from their sins, from their demerit in his own blood. He made them kings and priests. And so they quit their thrones and fall down before his throne. This is always the most fitting position for worship. God is to be esteemed as infinitely exalted and we are to take a position of abject abasement. I know it is not um, it is It's a fitting position for the body during worship to fall down before the living God. As you see our room set before us, we uh, don't have very much room for such a thing. But it is fitting to do in body. But when we do it in body, it's not for the exercise of the body. You remember Paul taught young Timothy that such bodily exercises profit little. It's not that they profit nothing. They profit little and they only profit in this. God cares very little whether we stand or whether we fall provided the heart fall down before Him. And when we in our secret uh, prayer closet have the opportunity to fall down with the body before Him, let it be so that our hearts might be stirred to take that position of abasement before God. For we are creatures, and in our creatureliness it is fitting for us to cover our faces and our feet as do the uh, seraphim. But in our fallenness, how much more so? Let us be humble before Him. There is no other position from which to worship this great God. This is the first action. They fall down before His throne. And they are described as worshipping him. They adore the ever-living sovereign. And I want you to notice here that the repetition, it was first described as what the, uh, the object of worship for the four living creatures. And I want you to just notice the repetition of the language here. God is again described as the one who sat on the throne and as the one who lives forever and ever. Same vocabulary, same words, very significant. The beasts or the living creatures worship. And then there's a reciprocal action on the the part of the 24 priest kings, the people of God. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But again, they don't worship a dead idol. They worship a living God, a speaking God. And I want you to notice here that they do not worship in ignorance. They do not worship a God whom they do not know. And in this, note how different uh, the Christian is to be from the pagan. You remember Paul as he was walking around uh, Mars Hill, saw monuments and altars to many gods, and even one to an unknown god. And Paul criticizes them for worshiping in ignorance that he came to declare God unto them. 
even Jesus Christ and proclaim the great benefit of the resurrection of the dead. We are not to be like the pagans worshipping in ignorance, say, God, we know not. But we have the scripture, a great and full revelation of God. And we are to digest that scripture so that we might worship him according to knowledge. Notice also the great difference between the Christian man and the Roman Catholic. In Roman Catholicism, ignorance has been made a virtue. When you simply believe, whatever the church might happen to believe, without even knowing what it is, that ignorance is even greater virtue, even greater faith. It is not so with the 24 priest kings. They worship this God according to knowledge. They know Him as the sovereign of the universe sitting upon the throne. And they know Him as the ever-living God. And they know even quite a bit more than that. We'll come to that uh, next week. Unhappily, uh, ignorance has come to be extolled even among Protestants. But may it never be so among us. Beware, little flock, in this day and age, in this postmodern day and age. Men revel in their ignorance and even say religion to consist very much in ignorance or believing this or that thing for no particularly good reason. This is not the religion of the Scripture. This is not the religion of our fathers, although it is called Protestantism. There is a third action here. They are said to cast their crowns before the throne. I've mentioned to you before that Augustine found this image very meaningful. It's an action of humility, very much uh, like that of coming down from their thrones and falling down before his. They also take off their crowns. As if no creature or man was fit to wear a crown in his presence. And they show in this also their willing subjection. He is their king. And they'll wear no crown while he is present in their midst. But it's also a recognition that they have received their crowns from his hand. He laid this crown upon their head. And they would have all the glory and honor that is attached to those crowns to redound to his glory and honor and not theirs. Consider uh, the um, graciousness of our God. And Augustine marveled at this. He said before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon unworthy sinners. He set in motion immediately the accomplishment of their redemption. A 4,000 year relentless and restless march to the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. His Son given as a gift to purchase their redemption on Calvary's cross. This great God then sends forth His Holy Spirit to apply that redemption to the people upon whom he set his love. 
And remember how we taught it through the confession of faith. This great God gives the gift of faith, unites a man to Jesus Christ, and this God justifies and declares them to be righteous with His righteousness. He gives them the grace of repentance and sanctifies them. They would be, in their own strength, prone to fall away, but He keeps them the additional gift of perseverance. All along the way, He cheers their heart with assurance, knowing that they've come to know this precious Savior. And He ushers them safely into glory. The redemption not only of the Spirit, but of the body, of the resurrection, and eternal life with Him. He does all of this. And then He rewards it. And this is what caused Augustine to marvel. He gives these great graces and then he crowns his graces with rewards. Who is like unto our God? But you see, the 24 priests kings are not deceived and they're not dull-witted. They know that these crowns all properly belong to him. So they'll take no glory, no honor to themselves but all glory and honor belongs to Him. And they cast their crowns at His feet. One final thing that I would have you to note, it's very important for our own public worship, Sabbath day by Sabbath day. I want you to notice the harmony, the order, and the reciprocity between the living creatures and the 24 officers. If you have, And the 24 elders all of the people of God. If you have an opportunity to go back and look very carefully at the echoing of the language uh, back and forth, the echoing of even the very same vocabulary, it's a beautiful and uh, a harmonious sight. Let it be so in our midst. Psalm 145, verses 1 through 8 to the tune, Duke Street. Two renderings. This is the long meter. O oh Lord, Thou art my God and King. Thee will I magnify and praise. I will bless. I will thee bless and gladly sing unto Thy holy name always. Please rise. Verses one through eight.